Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Gottlieb about the new book, Care-Centered Politics, From the Home to the Planet. Why a care economy and care-centered politics can influence and reorient such issues as health, the environment, climate, race, inequality, gender, and immigration. Robert, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So can you tell us, what do you do? Well, I am uh, a writer and uh, a retired professor, and I um, also edit a, a couple of book series at MIT Press, and I have a new book that... Um, came out just a few weeks ago called um, Care-Centered Politics from the Home to the Planet. Um, and I continue to write uh, various essays and, um, uh, you know, go back to um, the books I've written in the past and um, taking off from the information I had in some of those books as well. And how did you get interested in studying this field? You know, I my my background is uh, uh, I've been deeply engaged and continue to be engaged in uh, uh, various social movements, um, environmental justice, food justice, climate justice, social justice. Um, and I've done a number of uh, books and articles about those topics as well as participated in, the, in those movements, uh, including in my teaching um, when I uh, taught classes that related to those topics or got students engaged in, uh, directly in community efforts to bring about change. And I at, uh, got interested in sort of pulling together a political history of both these movements and 
my own work in those movements and the people I worked with uh, over the years. And as I was collecting the material for that, uh, one of the things that struck me was how deeply engaged people were and these movements were in this concept of care and care politics in particular. And I thought uh, it would be important to really trace that and relate it back to the work that's been going on for a number of decades around care issues and expand the concept of care to include not just the kind of intimate relations between people that require or are part of a, a, a care practice, if you will, but how that relates to those social movements uh, and the issues, the deep issues around environment and climate and food that I've been engaged in. So that really was the origins of thinking about doing a care-centered politics book and linking the world of care uh, to the uh, opportunities and possibilities of social and political transformation. And so, yeah. yeah, and in your career journey, um, you mentioned you obviously participated in all of these social movements. Um, what about your colleagues and your mentors? Were there people that were really supportive of you and uh, just somebody that uh, who sort of were thinking on the same wavelength? That uh, That's a, a good question because I feel yeah. in many ways I have... Um, multiple mentors, if you will, um, beginning with uh, when I was a 23-year-old, I was deeply engaged in the student movement and the anti-war movement uh, around the Vietnam War. And I was also interested, I participated in several of the organizations, and I was invited to give a talk in Germany at this uh, sort of the equivalent student group uh, called German SDS. And on my way there, I stopped and met with the people in, in Paris who were helping uh, with solidarity work around the Vietnam War. And I and they asked me, was there anybody I wanted to connect with while I was in Paris? And I said, well, one of the mentors I have in terms of the work that he's produced is a man named Andre Gorse. And um, uh, he was a brilliant writer and a journalist and uh, a theoretician who was looking at ways to um, re uh, reinvent, if you will, um, uh, social change theory. And um, so I met with him and it was a wonderful moment. And I followed his work till till his death um, many years later. And um, that, that inspirational meeting, and then of course the work that he had done was an example of uh, an, such an important mentor to me. Uh, Another person who uh, I connected with and um, who, who was a, a really a critical uh, person thinking about um, issues around environment and um, social justice was Barry Commoner. 
and um, I uh, connected with him on a number of occasions and the work he was doing. Um, and he uh, talked about really rethinking um, how um, science connects to issues of environment and daily life uh, and the kind of toxic environment that um, had been created through uh, decades of industrial capitalism. So uh, he was another mentor. And then uh, several of my students became, if you will, mentors to me uh, in terms of the interaction we experienced. Um, uh, I have uh, I had a student uh, who, who worked with me uh, subsequent to the courses he took and then uh, the work we did together to produce a book on solid waste called War on Waste. His name is Louis Blumberg. He was a musician. Um, his name is still very much alive and out there. Um, and he went on to a career uh, dealing with uh, broad global environmental issues and uh, was one of the first people to really deal with climate issues, particularly things like extreme heat. And um, so Lewis really helped reframe how I thought about um, a climate um, at a point when the climate justice movement was just emerging. Um, so he was a, a mentor. A another person who was a student of mine who became a mentor was a woman named Michelle Mascarenas. And she, uh, when I was at UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles, she was one of my students got involved with me on food issues. Um, and she uh, subsequently uh, came with me when I uh, switched from UCLA to Occidental College uh, to help create a center for food and justice as part of the work we were doing at Occidental, part of a broader uh, overall policy institute that we had set up. Um, and uh, Michelle was uh, a mentor in the sense of understanding how you connect action and research um, with uh, developing uh, the kinds of uh, partnerships, particularly in, in, in terms of the food justice world and how that connected to so many other kinds of social movements that were so important to make those connections. Michelle now was just hired by the Sierra Club to do the kind of organizing and outreach is a bold move on the Sierra Club's part because of her hmm. um, important history that she brings to it. Um, and so she was a, a mentor for me. You know, there's a, a phrase I picked up on in terms of care politics uh, that um, I think is emblematic of a way of thinking about care more broadly, which is, um, if you will, another mentor, Joan Tronto, who writes about care in, um, in a broader context of how it connects to institutions of daily life. And she talked about, you know, people get cared for or they provide care, but the democratic impulse 
is when you're caring with. And I think of my relationships with the people, whether it was Andre Gortz or Michelle Mascarenas or Andy Fisher, another person uh, I work closely with who was a former student of mine, as a caring with, uh, thinking about more broadly um, how, in fact, care becomes a more democratic impulse, a community, a sense of community that you bring to that um, relationship, and how you can then translate that into looking at uh, sort of the institutions and inf what I call the infrastructure of daily life, the kinds of issues that uh, we, we deal with in a, on a daily life con uh, setting. Um, so, uh, that's thinking of mentors is really a way of thinking about how you build a sense of a, a community of care, if you will. And you yourself as a mentor with such a wealth of experience, what would you say to our student listeners and perhaps people who are interested in the, uh, this topic and activism in particular? You know, there's a, a wonderful uh, phrase that um, I a site in that Raymond Williams, the great um, literary critic, once said, which is to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And I think of that in, in relation to, particularly for uh, a younger generation, how easy it is to uh, assume uh, the despair in relation to the kinds of uh, challenges and life transforming uh, crises that we've experienced and continue to experience, whether it's the climate crisis, whether it's the crisis around health and uh, pandemics, whether it's the crisis around race and class, um, and and gender issues uh, that um, have uh, created um, uh, sort of uh, a situation for people um, that uh, experience that that kind of uh, uh, visible uh, exploitation in, in their daily lives. That all could lead to a sense of um, anxiety, despair, um, but in acting to change that and, and to create the possibility of change uh, is not only hopeful, but it creates a sense of that you are part of a process of change. And that's, uh, that's a sort of a core uh, value I would like to communicate to a younger generation who are so subject to the, the headwinds of around despair. Mm. And I, then when we dig into some of these issues, um, whether it's food or um, environmental politics or um, the climate justice work that's going on, uh, whether it's in terms of dealing with uh, race and, um, and, and gender and class issues, um, you can see that change is possible. Um, 
it's uh, one of the uh, uh, important ways that Andre Gortz, for example, uh, provided, if you will, a, a route for transformation was to think of change as that process. Uh, and also to distinguish between change that built on uh, the possibility of transformation versus change that was a form of holding back uh, what those possibilities could be. Um, you know, he called it a kind of structure, the structural reform, reform that leads to uh, greater transformation. And uh, you can see that in terms of uh, the kinds of innovations that have developed um, or the policies that have been passed to distinguish between change that's that leads to greater transformation and change that maybe is uh, trying to keep it at a, a minimum or even ultimately reverse um, that process. I, you know, uh, I, I was looking today at um, some of the things uh, that are uh, being said about um, uh, some incredible climate events we're experiencing right now. Um, the flooding in Pakistan, uh, which has uh, been uh, decimating uh, uh, not only countrysides and cities, but leading to thousands and thousands of deaths and really making um, uh, the country uh, a climate casualty. And um, th there at the same time are in negotiations about debt repayment. And I uh, one of the things that struck me and some of the things you're seeing about the situation in Pakistan or the, the heat waves um, that are being experienced in parts of uh, around the world, in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere, is that the, the uh, what is really required is a recognition that this is uh, a, a, a global responsibility to uh, reverse um, the, not only in terms of what is needed to um, slow down and ultimately mitigate these climate impacts, but what to do right now when you have these heat waves and, um, and these, the flooding episodes. And at the same time, policies like uh, the debts that have accumulated, um, which are debts held by uh, the countries and the forces that have really brought about some of these kinds of climate impacts. But this is really the, the, the debt is a kind of reverse reparation. You know, you pay us for the problems that we caused you. Or for example, when um, uh, Haiti, the country of Haiti over, over 
um, turn the slave regimes um, that um, uh, some of the slave owners and the sugar plantation people in France said back in the 19th century, well, you know, you need to make reparations to us mm. rather than the slave owners needed to make reparations to uh, the slaves that they held in bondage. That form of what France did for uh, over 100 years enforcing payments is a form of reverse reparations, as with the debts that have been incurred for countries like Pakistan to and, and their need to deal with issues that um, the debt owners, if you will, have caused um, the people who have to pay the debts um, and yet experience the consequences of what uh, the debt owners have done to them in relation to climate. Uh, so reparations is one of the things I talk about, that it's an issue uh, historically related to uh, the pa uh, a past that dealt with things like slavery, but it's also issues uh, like climate that are an accumulation of years of, uh, of policies and of actions that have led to the kind of uh, crisis that we're in right now. And so reparations becomes a way of thinking about, you've got to reverse the reverse reparations, if you will. You've got to um, create the ability to both figure out the ways to prevent uh, and uh, worsen uh, the, uh, the climate catastrophe that we're in, uh, but also how to deal with it right now. Um, how do people... Um, uh, uh, how are they capable of um, adapting to the situation in a way that allows um, uh, allows one to establish what I call the care center politics? Um, and uh, one of the forms that would take is through reversing the the order the the. Uh, uh, of where and how uh, responsibility lies and creating, a, a, in effect, a program of redistribution of the resources and the capacity um, to, uh, to both prevent and, and make the adaptations that are required with climate. So in your book, Care Center Politics, From the Home to the Planet, you focus on care. So just to make sure that everybody's on the same page, can you describe what do you mean by the care work? What does it encompass? Well, care work is uh, both very specific to what um, is required to, uh, to meet people's needs uh, whether it's as children, as elders, uh, in situations like schools, um, around people's health. Um, these are um, uh, work that um, it involves the care of others. 
And um, when you think of, uh, for example, the pandemic, um, you had uh, the term essential workers, uh, which was related to what was needed to keep things going for people who required care. Um, so almost all or a, a large percentage of essential workers, the, the term that was created, um, were care workers. Um, they were people in childcare or elder care or teaching or um, uh, or maintaining uh, essential services. Um, so that's one way of thinking about care work. It's, it's being able to um, deal with people's needs on a, a daily life basis uh, and who require some level of care. Um, but I think there's a, also a broader definition of care, which is any labor, any work that is caring, that involves thinking of the work that you do um, as uh, important to um, sustain um, the, the, uh, that daily life infrastructure uh, that we have uh, and which needs attention to. Um, and that uh, is sort of foundational to, uh, to daily life. Um, and you do it in the context of a care framework. Um, then that becomes a, a form of caring labor, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, too often care work is defined uh, solely or certainly uh, almost exclusively in market terms. So you pay for the care work. Mm. Well, there's a problem with that framework, um, which is uh, one that extends to so much else in our daily lives, the sort of market rules all framework. With care work, uh, first of all, the people who do get paid are almost all, not all, but almost all um, heavily exploited. They're underpaid. The conditions of work are um, uh, often uh, uh, not just challenging, but uh, harmful. Um, uh, a lot of the care work is done by women and um, immigrants and people of color. Um, who are subject to that type of exploitation. Um, on the other hand, you have care work that is not paid. That's the daily life of people who are um, maintaining households, uh, caring for elders um, in the home or as, as neighbors and friends. Um, this non-paid care labor is actually a huge amount of the care work that goes on. Um, and it's not only not paid and not recognized uh, for uh, how essential it is, um, 
but it's it's also it skewers the notion of how you value work uh, if if you're doing it solely in market terms. So one of the things I write I, I talk about in care center politics is thinking about ways in which care work needs to really be uh, transformed into thinking of it as, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking of it as essential to daily life, and that um, and that it needs to be uh, 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 seen as um, of having the kind of value that is not accorded to it right now. Um, and, and moving away from thinking about work as primarily in market terms or when it's not thought in market terms, uh, in terms of the quote unquote unpaid labor uh, to value it as well. One of the, um, in the chapter on care work and the care economy, one of the uh, movements, uh, early movements that was uh, really an important breakthrough, I thought, uh, in terms of thinking about care-centered politics, was uh, in the early 1970s, there was uh, uh, an effort to define what was called wages for housework. Mm. And uh, wages for housework uh, wasn't exactly a political program. It was a way of situating um, why the framework around work and market was so skewered. Uh, because people you, uh, were assumed that somehow housework uh, often defined in uh, gender terms, that was women's work, um, and uh, it was quote unquote natural. So the wages for housework people try to explode that framework and say, look, you have to really redefine it um, in ways that make you think both about um, um, how you value it differently and uh, what it means to do work, whether it's paid work or unpaid work, housework or um, uh, work in, quote, a, say, a factory. And um, interestingly, two of the areas, they didn't want a program. They It was really a, a provocation, if you will, for people to um, be able to think about this uh, differently, um, this whole notion of what constitutes work and where, quote, unquote, housework fit into this. And the two areas that they uh, raised were one was the idea of what today we would call the universal basic income, that everybody um, should, quote unquote, have a wage or should be um, uh, paid according to the value of that work um, as it met people's needs in daily life circumstances. And one of the groups they uh, associated with this notion of a universal basic income um, was, uh, for example, welfare clients who um, were saying, 
look, we need an adequate wage. We need an adequate means of support for daily life uh, needs. Um, and um, so that was one of the um, breakthroughs that the Wages for Housework movement uh, really created a framework for thinking about this idea of, of uh, what I would call redistribution of resources uh, through a program like Universal Basic Income. The other uh, breakthrough they had was thinking about work as uh, they didn't define it then, but I would uh, subsequently looking at what they were arguing is that if you define work as activity and move it outside the, the market realm, then you want to be able to um, reduce substantially what it meant to work in terms of the hours of the day dedicated to that one area that you were engaged in around work. Um, so they were talking about changing uh, both in paid labor and unpaid labor, um, how much work went, uh, was done in a day uh, dedicated to what one was working on. Um, so reducing work hours was another important um, framework that the Wages for Housework people uh, put forth. And um, th that I see as one of the key dimensions of a care-centered politics is how do you create a framework for equality um, in terms of what resources are available to people? And how do you create a framework of a different kind of uh, idea of what constitutes work. Um, and you do have movements today talking about uh, universal basic income, reduced work hours. Uh, again, I would say, put that in the context of what Andre Gortz said, is that concept one that moves towards a kind of more transformative approach? Or is it simply saying, well, if we uh, reduce a uh, work hours to um, from uh, the quote unquote 40 hour work week when people are really working 60 hours or more to okay well let's let's just keep it at 40 hours is that really going to lead to the kind of transformation that we need uh, around how we deal with work look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
that's fascinating. And I was wondering, has the universal basic income been tested in a field, in a real life, maybe on a smaller scale than a whole country, but uh, somewhere? Well, it, it has been um, uh, initiated in multiple places, multiple countries, as well as communities. Um, on a smaller scale, um, some involving sort of uh, for example, anybody under 21 years old uh, or artists um, getting uh, a basic income uh, or uh, people who um, are uh, low income and don't have the means to uh, really uh, meet their daily life needs um, or um uh, sometimes whole communities, um, uh, at least on a limited basis. And one of the things that's interesting in terms of the research on these small-scale initiatives is how people, in fact, became much happier in their daily lives. Um, that, you know, when you are when you don't have the resources to meet daily life needs, that leads to all kinds of um, negative outcomes, whether it's in terms of health, whether it's in terms of building your skill capacities, whether it's in terms of relationships, uh, whether it's in terms of your mental health. Um, and so when people were surveyed after this, these experimental programs um, or the low um, small scale programs, one of the uh, major characteristics they talked about was their level of happiness mm. uh, and well-being uh, in comparison to before they were part of that program. Um, and that uh, is such an important insight that if you want to measure a goal of, say, an economy, or a, um, uh, a work situation or um, other kinds of needs that we're talking about, you want well-being. You want uh, people to feel engaged as um, uh, that they're both happy themselves and contributing to other people's happiness. Um, of course, challenging when you don't have the means to do that. Um, so universal basic income is one important step towards thinking about how do you move towards that type of framework of, um, of well-being and happiness. So care center politics can address some of the issues that we have in a current um, sort of uh, world world standing world uh, uh, the way the things are going so our listeners will be of course familiar with japan for example with the aging population so i, wa I was wondering how would care central politics address these issues especially when it comes to elderly care well elderly care is um uh a critical dimension of care work. Um, we, uh, 
but if the framework for elderly care work is, first of all, uh, that it's sustainable in terms of who participates in it and what that entails in terms of their life, um, uh, the, you know, do they have the resources to sustain um, a, an effective care for elders? It's also uh, important from the context of how the elders themselves participate in that care. And that it is, there's a capacity for that um, that's interactive. Um, uh, between um, the care, if you will, the caregiver and the care recipient. Um, and uh, if it's a program of elder care that's uh, related to um, not in the home, but elsewhere in community settings or places like um, uh, uh, nursing home, say. Mm. Um, what you need to do is take that away from how it's organized in market terms. You know, 70% of, um, of the nursing homes are operated by um, private entities that treat them as profit centers. And as a consequence, it's sort of a, um, a way to think more how that is so representative of the marketization and privatization of care more generally. And those are the institutions that rightfully have uh, some of the worst reputations in terms of elder care abuses and um, uh, the push to say, oh, you you got to continue the elder care at home rather than in an institutional setting or a non-home-based setting. And that has to be uh, transformed in a way that makes uh, the idea of care not just a home-based uh, issue, but a community issue. And how can we transform these places so that they are um, uh, dealing with uh, the capacity to have um, more uh, sort of human interaction between elders and their um, those who are caring for the elders? And, you know, there are organizations um, that uh, uh, have uh, been mobilizing around these issues. Um, uh, one of the people I talk about, uh, the work that she does, Ajahn Poo, um, and um, the kind of care networks that she has created, Caring in Action, and um, the uh, she has uh, and the groups that uh, and the people who work with her have really created a, um, a a movement to change what it means to have not just elder care but all the other forms of care that um, we're familiar with child care um, 
uh, the kind of uh, care around those who are disabled, um, and uh, and also to have a framework for how people who provide the care are supported, people who receive the care are supported, and the interaction between them. And how would uh, care-centered politics and economics help us address the environmental issues that we're facing? You know, I think uh, a care politics is central to um, how we think about um, both uh, care for the earth, which is one of the chapters of the, uh, my care-centered politics book, um, as well as thinking of it in climate terms as well. In terms of care for the earth, you know, there's of course a uh, uh, an invaluable history and tradition of care for the earth uh, associated with indigenous communities, um, with those who set out to um, uh, define their connection to the land and uh, terms of care terms, rather than again in uh, in terms of thinking land as a commodity. Um, uh, one of the things that was so interesting um, during the pandemic, for example, is uh, the huge interest and spike in people gardening mm. um, for reasons of their own health, their own sense of um, uh, well-being, uh, Gardening itself is uh, creates the, that kind of capacity for uh, you take care of yourself, if you will, uh, in, in, in gardening, uh, but also in terms of um, you can create healthier foods. Um, and it's also a different way of caring for the place around you, land that you are part of. And when you broaden that to think about gardening as the kernel of how to think about food, for example, differently, or the connection to the land differently, um, care politics really leads you to these broader strategies um, like agroecology and regenerative farming, that where you're you're caring for the land in a very different kind of way, um, and similarly, that I would say that that leads to a, a framework around climate and and particularly those engaged in what is um, uh, seen as a climate justice movement. Um, uh, that you you need to create ways to uh, think both in your immediate lives, your communities, and globally, uh, what it means to care for the earth, if you will, um, from the way you care in your daily lives. Um, and uh, one of the things the book talks about, which uh, tries to extend the argument around climate justice, if you will, 
is by bringing in a care politics perspective, it adds um, ways in which we think about um, climate politics or climate change politics. Um, for example, the Green New Deal, um, which in many ways is a very central care politics concept. It was introduced, it talked about um, how we need to really shift the balance of um, uh, whether it's uh, how we produce the energy we use or how we take care of the land uh, um, in terms of things like agroecology, um, how we use resources like water. Uh, all that is imp either implicit or directly embedded in the Green New Deal concept, and as well as the uh, the history it had um, uh, in this country when uh, the, the concept was really expanded uh, about four or five years ago. What I suggest also that a care politics brings to, uh, to that discussion and to that movement is to also think about that Instead of saying, well, how can we build huge projects that are uh, potentially also uh, destructive or, or to use approaches um, for uh, dealing with um, carbon emissions that are themselves problematic, like nuclear power. Mm. And how can we also address, as the Green New Deal idea does address, the notion of, uh, well, what about all those jobs that were in the fossil fuel industry? How do you create what um, many call a just transition for those who worked in um, oil and gas industries, for example, um, so that they're not sort of cut loose. Um, and the, the challenge around that is then how do you define the kinds of care jobs that you want the, those who are, if you will, in anti-care jobs, like um, um, creating the... Uh, exploiting the oil and gas in the ground to uh, that lead to the kind of climate impacts that we have. How do you, what kinds of care jobs do you want that transition uh, to take place? So one way is to think about um, the kind of care work that we've been talking about. How do you, uh, which are sorely needed and, and defining those care jobs as good green jobs, if you will. And how do you make them supported in a way that uh, allows people to make that transition? So that's one of the uh, important ways in which care politics brings to bear on a, a climate politics. And the, the other way I would uh, argue is that if we're dealing with climate in global terms, as well as in local terms. Uh, 
one of the crucial ways it needs to be addressed is uh, what uh, the Buddhists might say is, what is enough? What is sufficient? Um, how do we create that kind of happiness and well-being that is a goal of a climate, of a care politics in the context of climate? And one of the ways to think about that is to reorient how we think about economy and growth and, um, and consumption. And that it, we really need to uh, transform the way we think about those issues um, uh, if we are moving towards a, a, a transformative climate approach. So how do you do that? Well, one thing is you, you have a framework for um, the equality, the equal redistribution of what it takes for people's daily lives. Um, and the second is to really think about, um, do we want this kind of hyper growth, hyper consumption model? that is the at the heart of the um, the economies around the world, um, whether it's in um, capitalist Europe and the US or um, uh, if you will, state capitalist China, um, that that you, you need to break that connection between uh, expanding consumption, as a measure of um, good economies, and that good economies are in this continual growth cycle, rather than thinking about um, economies that are based on well-being and daily needs, and economies that are, in fact, um, uh, moving towards equality of resources and an understanding that what is enough? Um, what do we need? Do we need to um, uh, have our lives fulfilled by um, the kind of consumption or compulsive consumption mon mantra that is out there as somehow that's a good thing for our economies? Um, so the the Green New Deal needs to also start, uh, or those, and the climate justice movement need to also think about those sets of issues. And many of them are, many of the participants are, but it needs to be broadened in terms of the, the, the discourse and, and the policy framework uh, for how we address uh, climate as well as those other environmental issues we were talking about. So now thinking about the bigger picture, what kind of ways can do we have actually to turn our current infrastructure towards more towards our uh, care-centered politics? Are you optimistic that we are able to actually reach these goals? Well, you know, there's um, 
the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci has that famous phrase that we have to have the uh, pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will, um, which he said while he was in, um, in prison in fascist Italy in the 30s. Um, and that, that's uh, really symbolic of our critical view of what we're experiencing in this world uh, mustn't turn Pollyannish, mustn't assume that because we passed a really scaled down and in many ways uneven piece of legislation, which is uh, a great misnomer, is it's called the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, uh, which had important uh, changes in terms of uh, bringing about uh, some transitions around climate, but also had some, some pretty poor things. Um, you need to have that critical capacity to say um, why these problems we have are there and what kind of change and transformation is needed. But we need optimism of the will to think about the capacity that we do have to bring about change, that it, it's not a, a single line upwards. Uh, there are many ways in which there'll be reversals, um, uh, setbacks, and we've experienced them in just the last um, in a decade or two in terms of the politics around us. Uh, but the capacity to act, to bring about change and to do it within this framework of thinking about care as central to the way we act, whether it's as individuals, as communities um, in a national context or globally, um, leads to an optimism of the will. And if we then uh, think about it in Gortzian terms, the way Andre Gortz laid it out, that you can start making changes um, that in fact can lead to bigger and broader changes, more transformative changes. Um, and we've seen that in some of these issues. Uh, uh, we've seen a sea change around um, some of the work around environment. We've seen some sea change in the world of food politics, a lot of setbacks as well. But there are changes that could lead to certainly important um, and more uh, foundational change as well. Um, and more broadly, we can see it in terms of how issues like the pandemic and climate crisis have allowed one to think about, uh, to use the, the phrase of um, the world's social forum, that another world is possible. And that's optimism of the will. And um, the uh, capacity to bring about that change can happen um, slowly, but it can also happen very rapidly and quickly. Um, that, uh, you know, I'll use one example. I was writing the book 
at a point when, you know, the, uh, the pandemic was uh, happening globally, uh, where we were encountering climate impacts at a scale that seemed unimaginable just a few years earlier. And uh, issues around race, for example, went to, came up um, in ways that led to this incredible outpouring in the, the largest global demonstrations ever around Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2020. I was deep into writing the book when that happened. Now, a, a massive, huge, massive outpouring and demonstration doesn't by itself bring about a transformation. Um, but it leads to uh, ways in which uh, there can be a way to rethink, re um, uh, connect with the kinds of changes that could be possible around, whether it's the issues of health or climate or race and class. And um, so I try and maintain that pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Um, and I think a care politics, care-centered politics is uh, central to that way of connecting to how to bring about change. And what discoveries in your research for your book, Care-Centered Politics, surprised you the most? I, uh, when I um, did the research on the Wages for Housework movement in the early 70s, um, I was, uh, it, it was surprising to see how resonant um, the ideas that were developed in that period, and largely in a different context with feminism at that point, uh, part of the feminist movement was very focused on allowing uh, equal opportunity in the workforce for women, which was, you know, an important um, way of thinking about what changes were needed. But wages for housework um, pro that, that movement really opened up a way to think about uh, work and um, uh, uh, daily life needs differently. Um, and um, uh, others, of course, knew about that movement and participated in it. And um, uh, another mentor, if you will, whom I don't know, but whose work was very inspirational, around the wages for housework and the work she did subsequently, Sylvia Federici, um, really uh, uh, placed front and center um, this notion of um, a, a different political framework, if you will, um, not based on a, any one particular policy, but a different way of approaching this one issue. What does it mean to have an unwaged workforce. Um, and um, that was a, 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 a exciting surprise in the sense of seeing how it resonated with 
the subsequent work that people did, subsequent movements, and my own work. And you are the veteran activist. So I was wondering, do you have any memorable encounters or events or something that really stuck in your memory? Uh, well, I, the, what I was saying about the uh, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations in summer 2020 um, was reminiscent to me in one way of the kind of uh, actions we undertook in the 1960s and early 70s in, around the Vietnam War. And uh, the, the, there needs to be a kind of a historical uh, reaffirmation of the importance of those events of the 60s that led finally to um, the end of that war, which was so important in so many ways for the kind of soul of this country. And I think the Black Lives Matter demonstrations um, are similarly needing to force a way of thinking about the kinds of transformations we need to make around um, issues of race. And I would broaden that to issues of race and class. Um, and then on the sort of smaller scale, in some of the work that I've done, um, the uh, when my daughter was in <clears throat> elementary school, um, this was uh, in the uh, mid nineteen nineties, and. She liked eating what we prepared at home. So she liked salads, for example. And she complained about what she was getting in terms of the school food. And of course, school food in the early, mid-1990s had a terrible reputation. Um, and it was compounded by um, uh, those who uh, were able to... Um, access the school food because um, uh, they uh, uh, met the requirements for free or reduced uh, school lunches, for example. And the school food had a reputation of being prison food. Mm. Uh, same, same, same kind of quality. Well, we were able at my daughter's school to put in a, a, one of the first school gardens and the kids loved it. And they would taste uh, the food. We had tasting sessions. They harvested the food. They planted the food. Um, it was a great success. And so we were looking for a model in terms of the food justice work that um, Michelle Mascarenas, the woman I mentioned earlier, was part of that effort, and myself included. And we came up with this concept, well, why not um, have food that is available, say, in the farmer's markets or uh, farms that were making available food on a subscription basis, the community-supported agriculture concept. Why not institutionalize that in a school context? 
And so we came up with this concept of farm to school. It, a couple of other places around the country were also playing around with that. And in my school, it, my daughter prodding me saying, come on, why can't we have a different kind of school food? Uh, why can't we have fresh lettuce? Why can't we have the food that we are growing in our garden be the food we get at lunchtime? So we approached the food service director who had been a longtime um, employee in the food industry and in school food industry, if you will. And he said, okay, uh, here's one of those parents that are gonna bug me and um, I'll set it up so that they can try it out one, one week in the summer at my daughter's school. And without us uh, knowing what, how he was planning it, he decided he'd give students the option. How about if we create uh, food that we get from the farmer's market or from directly from a farmer and create a salad bar and then also serve pizza as the separate option and have the children choose either pizza or this farm to school salad bar. And so in organizing the event, we got um, the kids to um, uh, do more taste tests uh, of the food that we were gonna bring in to be part of this farmer's market salad bar, if you will, or farm to school salad bar. And the kids loved the taste test. And they say, oh, this must be coming from our garden. It looks like it. It tastes like it. And we say, well, you know, it is kind of like that. And so we built a constituency before this program was launched for that week-long test uh, where the kids were really into it. Then we also worked thinking about the cultural, culturally appropriate way in which you present that salad bar. So... Uh, we had a young Latina who was um, uh, uh, one of our students uh, who worked with the parents of the Latino kids. It was about 50% Latino, the school, and Latinx. And they um, said, well, you know, why don't you have some lemon slices that you can put on the lettuce? Because that's the way our kids eat salad at home. So we did things like that. And lo and behold, that week came, the first day came, and the kids chose the salad bar by like a 75% of the students participating um, in the school lunch that day chose the salad bar. And our food service director, a man by the name of Rodney Taylor, had an epiphany. He said, you know, my business should be providing healthy food. I should be a health champion. I should be a person um, fostering well-being, not thinking of it, of how many kids can choose my meal and how much uh, cost savings I would have and um, sort of putting it in strictly economic terms. And he became a champion of farm to school. Um, and he went on to other school districts. He was very influential. And he also said, you know, I'm going to get the, the lunch ladies, the, the staff who serve the meal to be part of this process of thinking about 
what is their work entail? Can they have a form of caring labor, if you will, of caring work? And so that was a critical shift as well in terms of where at least he applied it and, and to a certain extent, others who became champions of the farm to school concept. Well, today farm to school is um, a large program. It's been adopted in, at state levels and US, the US Department of Agriculture has embraced farm to school. It's in all 50 states. It's often community initiated when it works best. Um, it's uh, supportive of keeping kind of the, the local farm communities uh, uh, more viable. There are still a number of barriers. School food still suffers from a number of institutional problems, independent of um, uh, what food is available. Um, uh, but it's a success story. And what's important about that success story in my experience and what I went through and the joy I felt in terms of seeing a program like this develop was how then does that become a step towards thinking how you transform school food, how you transform the relationship of those who farm to those who consume um, the uh, the slogan of the food justice movement is know your farmer, know your food. Um, and how does that operate in a global context? Um, and another great joy of mine was finding out about um, these sort of farm direct programs in China when I was doing some research on environmental, urban environmental issues in China. Uh, this was about six, seven years ago. Um, and, you know, and it is a global concept. Um, and it's part of a way to think about food justice and the care framework around food justice that affects those who grow the food and those who consume the food and in an institutional and an industry-wide and a global context. Well, this has been a truly insightful discussion. So can you tell us what are you working on next? You know, I started um, this discussion talking about what led me to this book and thinking about doing kind of a political history of social movements, my own work in it, the people I've worked with over the years, uh, which led to this um, uh, idea of really exploring the concept of, of a care politics. Well, I'd like to revisit that. And that's what I'm working on now is thinking about instead of doing a quote unquote traditional memoir, I would like to put it in the context of this political history. And I'd like to go back in time just as um, discovering wages for housework as a um, uh, the an important way of thinking in a different framework and how it resonates today. I'd also like to go back to my parents' generation um, um, to think about uh, the social movements of the 30s, where and how they provided both lessons and um, 
that were both positive and critical lessons for us today and uh, move that through um, subsequent periods like the setbacks in the 1950s that led to uh, kind of an upsurge of reactionary movements and um, uh, a desire to really change uh, issues like the status of women or issues around race, um, uh, the existence of poverty where people were assuming there was plenty to go around. Into the 60s and the 70s, the setbacks of the 80s when the concept of neoliberalism, the idea that there is no such thing as society, that the market rules all, um, dominated uh, for, actually has, continues to dominate in many ways. And then the movements that have emerged since then to challenge those premises and to think about um, ways in which the actions of individuals, communities, and movements can uh, lead to a process of change. And that would partly be my own work, but it would really be thinking it in the context of multiple people, uh, those mentors, if you will, that were important to me, but also the movements that I and others have engaged in. So it would be a political history that would have both personal and social stories associated with it. It would be much more of a kind of a narrative book than a, a book that's um, simply uh, doing analysis and um, and the kind of more factual research. Mm. Storytelling, I feel, is a, a central part of the research process. Mm, that sounds super interesting. Looking forward to that. And in the meantime, what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Well, the book is now out. Uh, just the last um, uh, three, a few weeks, it just came out. So it's, you know, it's in all the usual places, um, the Amazons, the Barnes and Nobles, the, it's, um, um, it's available in what I would prefer if people could order the book or go to uh, some of the independent bookstores. I have favorite ones, but there are ones um, around the country um, in the U.S. and and in other countries. Um, Northtown Books in Arcata up in Humboldt County, which is a place I've gone to, or um, uh, Book Soup in Vromans in, in the Los Angeles area. Um, uh, bookends and beginnings uh, in Evanston in Chicago, in the Chicago area, where I'm going to be doing a, a talk, um, uh, sort of like a, a workshop or seminar for people to participate um, and um, respond to what I have to say. Um, and uh, it, about my own work, you can go to uh, the faculty page at Occidental College. They have, I have a little profile. Wikipedia just, I'm 
has established a profile, particularly of the um, the uh, more than a dozen books that I've written over the years. Um, uh, so those are some of the places people can explore. I, you know, I'm, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't a big social media person, but I'm doing it now. And it's very interesting. Um, and whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or um, uh, Instagram and Facebook, I, um, uh, I see great value in social media. I also see all the challenges and the negative parts of that. Um, just in the little that I've experienced. So I'm just a beginner. I'm a novice at that. Um, and I'm giving talks uh, mostly at this point because of the pandemic or the, you know, the continuing up and down with the pandemic. A lot of them are virtual talks and um, they'll, uh, they'll be also available through MIT Press, which is my publisher and um, and uh, one final word, I also edited a couple of book series at MIT Press called Urban and Industrial Environments and a second one called Food, Health and the Environment. And so I'm continually trying to connect with people who are doing the kind of work that I see is really crucial for a, a transformative approach to social, political, and cultural issues and environmental issues in, in particular. So um, that would be another, uh, you can go to look at the series titles and that is a reflection, I think, of some of the work uh, I'm connected with. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure.